You're listening to Some Assembly Required, the podcast that explores the ups and downs of being human. My name is Sean, and if this is the first time you're here, welcome. In previous episodes, I've explored the power of sleep on our brains with a sleep neuroscientist and unpacked our abilities to regulate our nervous system when we are feeling overwhelmed. Today's episode is about one man and his ability to find himself and help others do the same. A dedicated father and husband, he can also claim the titles of record-breaking athlete, accountant, chef, entrepreneur, performance coach, and best-selling author to his name. But while that all sounds very impressive, the story runs the gamut. I started drinking and smoking weed before anyone my age. When I was in standard four, which is grade six, I was hanging out with my sister who was in grade eight, and she was hanging out with her friend's older sisters who were in grade 10 or 11. And um, that was around the age that my folks got divorced. I spent a lot of time hanging out with them, and I think they saw me as like this pet. So they thought it was fun to like feed me alcohol. Um, because it was like so so bizarre to have this light to you, like getting all drunk. His voice hasn't even broken yet, and he's like vomiting because he's had too much to drink. Today's episode, Jono Proudfoot. Because I wasn't good at school or sport, I got a certain level of significance from that because um, I could go to school and I wouldn't be able to talk about my marks or sport, but I could say, oh, I got like hammered drunk on the weekend with my sister's older friends. As a teenager, he was angry at the world with little to no self-worth. And it didn't take long before the kids at school gave him the nickname Trash. And I remember all the way through high school, even like I worked as a marshal at Indoor Grand Prix in, in Kenilworth in Cape Town. And I remember, I think in like standard nine, going for a drink like on a Wednesday night because I knew the barman and he'd give me fr- free drinks. And I'd come home at like nine or 10 o'clock on a school night drunk. So I think if anything, I had a much bigger drinking problem when I was at school. Um, and, and it just kind of carried on. I think that I was really depressed and angry and I felt very hard done by compared to some of my friends at school who had like good families and stuff. And the fact that I could get away with being hammered drunk on a school night, um, speaks volumes for what kind of environment I lived in as a child, where there was just no one to even notice that that was happening. And, and so that became my escape, my, my medication, yeah. Jono openly shares that his parents got divorced while he was still quite young. And he also had a parent who was in active addiction. How do you think that aspect of your childhood impacted the rest of your life? In coaching, we look at a high challenge, high support environment is the best environment for anyone to excel because they've got someone supporting them, but they're also challenged and stimulated. And the worst place you can be is is low support, low challenge, where like no one cares. And my childhood was very much a high challenge, low support environment. I was left constantly not feeling good enough and also that I didn't really matter. Uh, and so the scar that that left on me was really a, um, one where I had to feel significant. I was desperate to feel like I was someone and I wanted to have a lot of external validation and praise and that kind of thing. So I th- and, and I hadn't had that while I was at school. I'd never really been good at anything. But as soon as that caught fire and I'd finally found something I was good at, it was almost like a drug that I needed to get more of. And it probably looked like I was resilient back then because I was like working hard and achieving. But I don't think that I really developed resilience until about 
11 or 12 years into my career. But that was where the drive came from. It was like this drive to, to find this significance that I'd never felt. The R word, resilience, the capacity to withstand or to recover quickly from difficulties. Some say toughness, others call it grit. And Jono, as you'll come to learn, has it in truckloads. Uh, complete this sentence for me. Failure is another way of saying learning. <laughs> if you work really hard at anything, you can be good at it. And so I look back at a lot of the stuff I'd failed at at high school, like maths, and I realized, like, hang on, maybe I could actually be good at this stuff if I, if I tried. And boy, oh boy, has he tried and learned some things along the way. As I listen to Jono open up about his life, I find myself thinking about puzzle pieces. Like, what if each new piece we turn over reveals our ability to handle something we had no idea we had within ourselves? And it's not so much about which piece should be turned over first, but rather how to put that piece to use later. Around 19, Jono starts to transform his life. So when I discovered cooking, I, I became super passionate about it and I worked super hard. I was quite highly ranked in my cooking school and I got a, a really good job at a top 10 restaurant in the country. You know, if I was a rugby player, I would be playing super rugby. You know, it was, I was in a team that was one of the best teams in the country and it felt really amazing to be in this highly ranked place. And so I was getting a lot of validation from that. But despite being in the Springbok equivalent of a restaurant kitchen team, the validation and sense of achievement he got there just didn't keep him engaged. And so I decided when I was 22, I think, to leave the kitchen and go and do a BCom. And halfway through, I ended up failing accounting. And when I failed accounting, I had to do a whole semester of just accounting on its own. All four of my best friends were studying to do their CAs, and I was doing a general BCom. I said to them, you know, I've got at this crossroads now, I don't really know what to do. And they said, look, if you're going to specialize in anything, do accounting. And so I nailed accounting that term. I got like, like straight A's for it. And then I changed majors. And to change majors, I had to go and do matric maths again. The qualified chef who enrolled to do a BCom failed and then slays accounting and then racks up a host of experiences in the restaurant trade, only to add yet another feather to his cap. Could the universe finally be conspiring in his favor? I'd watched Jamie Oliver, I think when I was in grade 11, and I was like, oh man, this guy's he's the first guy who's made cooking cool. Because before him, it was like Keith Floyd and Delia Smith. And I thought, this guy's incredible. And and so I actually, like on a few benders, late night benders in high school, you know how you all go out and come home and you get the munchies. And they would sit there, you know, finishing off the dregs of whatever they were drinking. And I would be in the kitchen whipping up the craziest food that they all very kindly ate. Like I did a cooking demo once at like two in the morning for them. And they were like, dude, you've got to do this. Like this is, you've got to get on TV and be a TV chef. So I remember an opportunity came up through a friend of a friend of a friend. And they invited me to go on this show called Hectic 99. And they needed someone to demo caviar. And that was like the whole brief. You've got seven minutes to do a thing on caviar. And I contacted this caviar supplier from the restaurant industry and she gave me a sample and she gave me this whole tutorial on how to eat it with a, a, a mother of pearl spoon and everything. And it was live. So I went on there and I did this live presentation and the producer came to me afterwards and she said, we're looking for a new co-host for this TV show. Um, is this something you want to do? And I was like, uh, yeah, like I want to do this so badly. I really thought we were Hollywood in Cape Town. And she mentioned the pen. I was like, oh, like you mean I could also wait and earn the same amount of money? <laughs> <laughs> Quite remarkably, Jono went on to do over 50 episodes of a TV show called What's Your Flavor? 
born out of a guest appearance on live television. At that moment, the world was my oyster. And I had also disproved a lot of what I had learned about myself in my adolescence. It was kind of this moment where I look back at everything and I thought like, wow, dude, um, 2012 was 10 years after I finished school. And I was the polar opposite of what I had been at school. So it was a, an incredible t- um, time for me, just reflecting out. Yeah. I think this is a good reminder for all of us that things do change given the time. And with that, our perspective on life can flip upside down. And reflecting on where we are versus where we were generally opens up a whole new realm of possibilities as long as we keep checking in on ourselves. I thought that at that point, I was like, you know, nothing can stop me. The next year, I actually ended up um, going into deep depression. I cashed in an investment that I did, like an endowment policy I had through work to fund my travels. And I came back and I thought that if I had this degree in commerce and all this experience that I would launch a business and become like an overnight millionaire. And I ended up being pretty much broke living off my girlfriend and failing a lot at stuff. I had a food truck. I had a consulting business. I had all these irons in the fire. I call it the flinging shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. And, um, and so I was doing a lot of poo flinging. Okay. And, <laughs> like, and so in 2013, a whole lot of stuff started to stick. Kate and I got into ultimate Brian master, which is this reality TV show. And I actually thought that getting into the show was my lucky break. And I, and I knew like Justin Bonello had this massive brand and I thought I was going to be like Jamie Oliver in the river club. Like I would get discovered and then the red carpet would open up for me and I would just become enormously successful. And- but what actually happened wasn't on any of the pages in Jono's playbook. Kate and I made it to the final and uh, we had this huge fight in the final. And to, to this day, like we don't talk about it. And I think we just lost our grip and didn't produce like the best food. <laughs> so. Earlier that same year, while in a deep depression and traveling, he'd started putting irons in the fire. He called it flinging shit against the wall to see what sticks. Remember? Well, one of those ideas was an extreme adventure swim of 459 kilometers from Mozambique to Madagascar, as well as writing a cookbook based on a diet Tim Noakes was promoting at the time. And I was hedging my whole career on Brimaster. And when we came second, like I still couldn't believe it. We were so, even the crew, they said during that shoot, they said they thought the final was a formality and that we would just take it. And so that's how surprised and shocked we were that we didn't win. I was so sad about that. Uh, that I came back and I threw everything I had into writing Real Meal Revolution. And I started just cracking the whip and driving the team and getting that together. And so that was the 5th of July, 2013, when I when we lost Ultimate Brimaster. And on the 8th of July, we had a meeting and planned the way forward for the book. And um, and literally 63 days later, that book went to print. So roughly two months after Jono and Kate returned from Ultimate Brimaster, The book had gone into print, and relatively quickly, it raced up the charts. In fact, Real Meal Revolution spent 36 weeks in the number one spot. Jono was all of a sudden a best-selling author. What was that like for you? So 2012, lowest of the low. 2013, like there's stuff in the pot, if you'll excuse the analogy. And then then 2014, uh, the book hits number one, and it's a massive hit. And the same year I get married, I also swim from Mozambique to Madagascar and break this world record. And towards the end of the year, I launched Real Meal Revolution, the business. And and so I've got this high traffic website. We're making tons of money online. 
it, it makes you feel like everything I touch turns to gold. So the feeling at that point was incredible. Like people wanted to speak to me. People wanted to talk business. I had, I owned all the trademarks. So if there was anything, at least real meal revolution related, people wanted to speak to me. And so I, I felt really important, you know, all that external validation, like kicking in big time. Like that's when I felt like I had arrived. Like this is the moment. Have you ever looked at your successes and tried to figure out how you would go about repeating those? Well, perhaps along the same lines as Jono's definition of failure a little bit earlier, there's a lot more for us to learn in our mistakes. So with that in mind, what would you say is your favorite mistake? I would say that it was losing Brymaster because if it wasn't for losing Brymaster, I probably would have pursued being like a young Bry type television character instead of, you know, changing all the lives and making such a huge impact and like, you know, starting a cult, like those things were massive for me. When he was up, he was really flying, but it turns out he couldn't quite keep it together through it all. In hindsight, it was a terrible thing to happen because I, I really believed my own story about about how great I was. And, um, and so it was incredible, you know, walking into rooms where people wanted to speak to you and having these big crowds. I mean, it was 100% Tim Noakes that everyone wanted to speak to. And by association, I just felt important. And then, you know, from there on out, we entered a downward spiral. Even that year when we were 36 weeks at number one, I remember um, on my wedding night, I got an email from my uncle who is a publisher in the UK. And he said to me, you know, we'd like to publish your book. And we had excluded international rights from our South African book contract with Quivertry. And they were busy looking around at, at potentials to get the book published internationally. And my uncle worked for Little Brown, which is owned by Hachette, which is the second biggest book publisher in the world. And I didn't really know anything about publishing. I just thought biggest publisher in the world it must be amazing. So Jono says to his uncle, cool, we'll come with you. But on the other side of this moment on Jono's wedding night lay a landslide of big mistakes, one after the other, waiting to have long-lasting effects on his life. Basically, the, the, the beginning of the sour grapes started with me orchestrating like a coup to oust Quivertry, the publishers, to, um, and in fact, David Greer, who really didn't deserve it, um, to get Tim Noakes and Sally Ann to come and republish the book in a UK international edition. And if you can just imagine that, imagine everyone's part of the most successful book in the history. And then there's some lighty who's no one uh, who, who hit like a home run and struck it lucky, trying to like upset the apple cart like that. And that was me. I was like, I don't care what you guys think, but this is the way it's going to happen basically. And um, so it started off nice and then it got super ugly, super fast. So that was the beginning of, of like so many fights and bad blood. I won a lot of those battles, but so badly lost in, in so many other ways because the severed relationships and just, just soiled my reputation. And in Cape Town, one bad move, it's like you get canceled in Hollywood. So it's taken like 10 years almost to, to repair a lot of those wounds and some of them aren't repaired. Yeah. Now you might be wondering, why did Jono write this book in the first place? It's important to know that the book Real Meal Revolution was born out of a need to raise money for what many would call an insane adventure swim. 459 kilometers from Mozambique to Madagascar without wetsuits. Just two dudes in the open ocean wearing nothing but spandex and some sunscreen. How did they get themselves into this? We were driving back from the Ironman 70.3. We had both done it with very little training 
and I had been smoking pretty much up to up to the rest day. We did it without dying, basically. And so we were driving back, and we were so pumped. It was like, oh my goodness, we we did it! Like it's so cool. And and so I had the iPad, and Than was driving, and we said, we've got to do something epic, like something insane that no one else can ever do. And this is why you shouldn't talk to your friends after you've just done a big event. <laughs> you should just shut up for like two days and let it sit, let it settle in. And we said, well, let's do something no one has ever done and that no one will ever, ever be able to do. And so we settled on like, okay, let's do an adventure swim. And then I was looking at the map of South Africa and I just zoomed out. One of us said to the other, like, what about swimming from Mozambique to Madagascar? And literally when we said that, we were like, holy shit, we've got to do that. This is going to, this has got to happen. It was two years later where we'd been like kicking the can down the road and I was in France. And like I said, I was depressed when I was on the sabbatical and I was so, so depressed that I started putting all these irons in the fire and fleeing poo. And one of the things was to get Thane on board to do the swim. So we had said we would do it, we would do it, we would do it. And the final thing that actually made it happen was we emailed David Greer when I got back. And David Greer, we found out, had actually kayaked from Mozambique to Madagascar. For those of us that are non-extreme adventure enthusiasts, David Greer is the first person in history to have run the Great Wall of China in both directions. That's 4,200 kilometers each way. And so we emailed him and said, hey, David, we're keen to do the swim. We would love to connect to chat about it. Now, at this point... I was 25 or so, whatever, mid-20s, but no real accomplishment. And David Greer was this big deal. And so when he wrote back, we were like, holy shit, this guy's like, he's going to meet with us. We're going to talk to this like famous adventurer. So we sat for coffee with him. And as he sat down, his vibe was so positive. And he just said, you know, he, the way he spoke to us was as though it was definitely going to happen. And we had kind of been talking about it because it sounded cool, but we had never really thought like this could actually happen. And when after that conversation, Thane and I looked at each other and literally both of us were like, oh, shit, like we're going to have to do this. And what David said to us was the most important things to know is that he said, if you swim, if I help you, you will have to swim for my charity. And it was the Sipla Miles for Smiles initiative, which is part of the Sipla Foundation. So the event at that time was going to cost 395,000 Rand. And he said, you have to equal that in charitable donations. So Thane and I are sitting there going, oh, my God, we're going to go have to go and like speak and do these public appearances. And neither of us were up for that. The two ideas we had were write a cookbook on the food we eat while we train or do a, do a naked Thane calendar because Thane's a, a supermodel. Anyway, and so, so Tim Noakes was punting this diet. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Kate, had lost 20 kilos on the diet. I had read a book called Achieving the Impossible by a guy called Lewis Pugh who swam the polar ice caps. And so I was, I just had this eureka moment and I thought, Lewis Pugh talks about Noakes loving swimming and researching him. Noakes is on this new diet. We're going to do the swim. Maybe Noakes can study us while we do the swim and we'll eat his diet. And then we can write a cookbook to raise money for charity. And then I thought, okay, well, that's what we're going to have to do. We had raised more money for charity than the swim cost by the time we actually went on the swim before we'd done a single talk about it um, because the publishers agreed to donate five rand for every copy sold to the charity. When we were doing our press thing in the beginning, I got interviewed by, by a journalist who asked me, you know, how the idea came about. And I said, it came up while we were driving home from Ironman. And she even said in the interview, she laughed and she said, are you serious? So I said, yeah, but we were just chatting about how we wanted to do something epic. And so in the article came out in the newspaper. She said, um, the boys came up with the idea after watching an action movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yet another reason to not believe everything you read, especially in a newspaper. Look, Tony Stark inspired us to go and swim from a diplomatic accident. Yeah. <laughs> And just in case you're starting to think all of these ups and downs span across decades, they didn't. So, in fact, the same week that I got back from Browmaster as a loser, I started training. And it was the same day that I had the meeting with the Noakes crew. I got in the pool and I swam 800 meters and the coach pulled me out. He said, Brew, you are ruined and you're slowing down everyone in your lane. Like, you have to get out. And I was Buggered. Like I got out and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe in six months time I'm going to swim from Mosby to Madagascar. And so I have this spreadsheet of all my miles and that swim is 0.8 kilometers on that Thursday or whatever day it was. From, from July, we went from swimming even fewer than 10 Ks a week to having a few 55 kilometer weeks um, in, in around early December. And, uh, and then around the 18th of December, I crashed from overtraining. And uh, over Christmas, I was sick. And there were two months where I did no training at all. And my left shoulder was giving me a lot of trouble. One thing led to another, and eventually we ended up getting sponsorship. And I hadn't trained in two months. I had literally swam one kilometer but when we got on the boat. And I had been sick. In fact, I've got a video of Thane and I talking about the swim a week before it happened. And I'm like, just like blowing my nose. I can barely speak. I'm like totally congested. He was like, bro, you can't bail. And I said, I was angry with him because I felt like... He didn't care if I died. <laughs> anyway, I, I just didn't want it to happen because we had talks booked. My career was taking off. We had all this real meal revolution stuff happening. And I remember sitting on the boat in the Durban Harbor, like waiting to leave. And we tried to leave three times. And every time we failed. First, they struggled to flick the rope off the cleat on the side of the pier, ultimately causing the boat to swing back and slam against the pier, leaving a gaping hole in the side of the boat. Then we um, missed the petrol fill-up station on our way out, and we had to bribe the guys to give us fuel. And then finally, we were leaving at night, and, and the guy had had the autopilot wired up to the compass. And as we pulled out of Durban Harbor, we were going north, and obviously Africa's on the, on the left and the ocean's on the right. And he punches in the coordinates and expects the boat to just sort of navigate us to where we we're going to go. And the boat just turns in towards the coast. And this is like at night when we've checked out, signed out, stamped out our passports, everything left the country. We had to go back into the pier and have some guy called Yuri come and fix the engine and the, <laughs> the autopilot. And I remember I lost my shit. I just, I was so scared for my life. I was so terrified. I was so sad about leaving because I was getting married in about a month and a half as well. And I said to Thane, if this fucking boat hasn't left the harbor at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm like getting on a plane. I'm going home. And I think he knew I was being serious because as, as midnight struck, I just remember like hearing the engines roar and, and off we went again. Incredible. Over the next five days out in the wide expanse of the ocean, leading up to the start of the swim, many things shifted in Jono's mind. Over the next week, I think one of the most uh, life-changing things that I can report ever having happened in my entire life happened. There were so many people who were expecting a result from us. We were on this boat. The only reason the crew were there were to make this mission happen. And I think I realized at that point, like there was now no getting out of it. And I did this thing, which no one taught me to do. I had no idea where it came from, but I knew I was unfit. And I knew I had to make myself believe that I was going to be able to do the swim. Originally, we were going to have 35 days to do the swim. And because of another charter that booked the boat, that was paying full price. They cut our swim time down by 10 days. So now we had to swim the same distance in, in 25 days. And so there were a few things that came up. Like the one was no matter how much pain you're in, you have to keep swimming. 
And the other was that you just have to get fit on the swim because you're not fit right now. So what does he do? He goes to all sorts of lengths to convince his brain and his body that he is not sick. He convinces himself that he's not only healthy, he's more than capable to tackle the 459-kilometer swim in the open ocean. I brainwashed myself into believing I was a swimmer. So I shaved my whole body and, um, and I started like lying in the sun on my stomach to burn my back to start teaching myself what it was going to be like after a whole day of swimming. And then I did this other thing. I, I made a whole chart that I would stick on the wall with every single swim that I was going to do over the next 25 days. And I drew like a block for each day. In each day, I divided each block by three. And then I wrote someone's name that I know in every single third of the block so that every swim, I was swimming for like a person. And we had a five-day boat ride from Durban up to where we were going to launch from. I, I lay on my back and I tapped out on my chest, like duff, 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 tapped out every hour of every swim that I was going to do for the next 25 days. And I did that roughly five times a day um, and imagine myself going through every hour of every swim. Imagine the ending where my toes would touch the sand and toes touching the sand was a big one for me. I was like anchored on that. Like this is, this is the end that I'm looking for my toes touching the sand. Underprepared physically, but mentally he was right in the thick of things. The day I got in the water, my mind had seen that swim happen so many times that for me, like, Doing the swim felt like a formality. Um, I was just, there was no part of my mind at all dur during the entire swim that, that thought that we might not make it. The only thing I thought is that I might die. So for me, it was, I'm either going to die or I'm going to finish the swim. And the death was going to happen either because I was pushing my body too hard or I would get breached by a great white or a tiger shark. <laughs> Now, I remember there were days where Thane freaked out about um, the weather and he got angry with me because I wasn't as concerned as he was about the current and stuff. I just knew I was so calm about that. I was not calm about a lot of other stuff, but about like whether or not we'd make it, there was no uncertainty whatsoever. Um, it was an incredibly powerful, like uh, mind altering experience. That visualization technique, do you think you've carried it further into other spheres of your life? And in fact, at the moment, I'm busy writing a book about about that specific thing because it was so powerful and i mean next to me i've got three pages with the cross off board like that's a super powerful thing even jerry seinfeld talks about it and then there are a few other factors at play like the type of accountability that we create around ourselves um i always talk about the four the five requirements to achieve any impossible goal which are to have a very clear goal it has to be crystal clear um, super measurable, achievable, blah, 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 like all the things that we say about smart goals. But then the four layers of accountability are around your community. So you have to tell people what you're doing. Um, and a lot of people don't tell people in their lives what they're doing because they're afraid that if they do that, they'll be embarrassed if they fail. But the paradox is that when you tell people, you start to shape your environment and people start to connect dots and you get referred to people who can help you. So talk about what, what your goal is. Then you've got to ask for help. And we had so many people help us. We had coaches. I mean, Tim Noakes was essentially helping us because the book was going to raise money for charity. There were loads of people. Um, then we had partners in crime. So Then and I had each other, training buddies, suffering, building community. We were doing this thing together. And the last part, which is quite difficult to manufacture without reframing, is making it about something bigger than you. So in the case of the swim, we had this charity that we were swimming for. But how I've used this model for people who are trying to lose weight to improve different parts of their lives is to find a way to make your goal bigger than you by 
seeing how it benefits others. So you could say something like for my son, I could say, oh, yeah, I could be better for my son if I was fit and healthy. But the better way to look at it is to say, to start the sentence with my son would have. With all of these goals that we help people with, I always ask them to see like why, like to create a bigger why than just because I want it or because I look good or feel good. See how the, the greater picture looks. When we had all of those tiers of accountability, I call it, we were, we were wrapped in an inescapable web of accountability. Like there was nowhere we could look without having to answer for ourselves. And we asked the question like, why when we can't sleep on our side because our shoulders are so sore and we can barely move our arms and our, and our backs, do we still dive in the water every morning and just swim? Like we just get in and do it. And we said, because we don't have a choice. We have to answer to everyone. So we just get in and do it. John, you're clearly very passionate about personal development and, and learning from the mistakes and then building on those. How do you balance taking care of your emotional well-being and pushing through the challenges that you've clearly faced numerous of throughout your life thus far? You know, they always say, do you, you, know, do you practice what you preach? And I definitely dip into my own merch. I have to say, like, I, I, have a, I have my own wheel of life. It's stuck on my computer next to me. I've got some pillars that I look at. Wealth, career, contribution, self, marriage, space. So, like, physical space. Parenthood, health, and, um, and then family, friends, and adventure. And I, I actively pursue growth in all of those areas as often as possible. And one of the things I learned from quitting drinking was that often we use food and alcohol to medicate. And sometimes it's not severe. You know, it could be like, oh, I had a tough day at work. I'll have a beer. And so for me, that, that period where I was really learning to do life without it was incredibly uh, valuable for me because I started to have to connect with my own emotions and understand what I was feeling and what the right muti was for that feeling. So my belief is that human connection is the antidote for, for most discomforts. And, uh, and often when we feel anxious, isolated, lonely, angry, sometimes just verbalizing it can actually diffuse a lot of discomfort. Um, but then we also need the, the basics, like we need to be with nature, we need to have meaningful work. Those, those two are essential. Being connected to, to a few elements of the wheel of life, they won't prevent you from being unhappy at times but they will certainly uh, lift your default setting. So I spend a lot of time analyzing how I feel and why, and then trying to select the right treatment for what's going on for me. But I'm not immune to, to like feeling super depressed. That, that happens to everyone, I think. And you get lows, lower than low than you can ever imagine. I think the difference is that I have a toolkit that I use for other people that I have access to as well. Having that toolkit is exceptionally important. I'm learning uh, through, well, through living life, I suppose. I know now you have a rich and fulfilling life. You speak about helping people crush their health and fitness goals. How does a life coach, a performance coach, help clients set and achieve goals? To understand like where we're at, I, I need a very clear status quo. So to just get an idea of what's, what's good and what's bad in someone's life, just get an idea of where they're at and build rapport. And then from there, we look at where they want to be. Sometimes someone will come to me and they're like, I want to lose weight and I'm desperate. I need to lose like this much in, in three months or I need to hit a revenue target by this stage or, you know, I'm not that interested in the short-term goal until we've looked way into the future. So I like to look at the 10, 15, 20-year vision for someone's life and really help them craft that. And I look at the 10 pillars that I mentioned earlier. Money and finance, career and work, health and fitness, fun and recreation, environment, community, friends and family, 
partners in love, growth and learning, and spirituality. And once you've got an idea of that, then I think you take away a lot of the anxiety because a lot of people want to fix something straight away. But if they know that over the next 20 years, they're going to be heading in the direction of this vision or dream that they have for their life, it takes away a lot of pressure. It gives meaning, intention, clarity of focus, purpose to the actions that you take on a daily basis and the short-term goals you set. So, you know, Sean, if you wanted to be fit enough to run a half marathon when you were 70, which is my goal, that guides or informs the kind of goals you can have for fitness in your 30s. You know, like you can't be running Comrades Marathon every year because you won't have knees when you are 70. And so some people end up pushing themselves less based on their on their long-term goals, which is amazing because they actually feel like, oh, okay, like I'm actually doing fine. A lot of people expect more f- from where they're at and are, and are ashamed that they haven't achieved enough. The other thing that happens is people look at the vision for their lives and realize that they actually have so much more of what they wanted than they thought. Once the goal is set for the long term, I try to like build up what I feel is what I call the parking lot, which is the kind of stuff, milestones along the road that you would have to achieve on the way to this vision. So stuff that you can't really put a deadline on, but that you know you'd like to do. Prior to getting into media, I used to be a swim coach and I'm reminded of my absolute favorite quote by Arthur Ashe that reads, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. For me, a coach is someone who finds the greatness that is in a a client and helps them unlock it to become a version of themselves that they could never even imagine was possible. It must be incredibly rewarding to watch people become more connected to their sense of self-worth. And it sounds like you really enjoy what you do. Yeah, thank you. It is. I mean, I always say I want people to live a rich and fulfilling life. And if there is one thing that I can help people with, it is that. Considering where the story started, how do you feel about being a parent? Getting immersed into my children's world feeds the soul uh, in the biggest way. And, and it's hard to do that. You can do surface level play, but to really like get into their world where you forget about time. Gosh, what a ride. With so many accolades and achievements attached to his name now, I had to ask just one more question. Does pineapple have a place on a pizza? Ooh, yeah, I think it does. But I think that you have to open your mind to what pizza is. And pizza for me, you get authentic pizza, which is like the Italian way. But I I believe that, for instance, Butler's, which is one of my favorite pizza brands in Cape Town, they are not like wood-fired, thin-based pizza. They are Butler's pizza. I would put it on like a bread base with some bacon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Some Assembly Required. I have included links for you to reach out to Jono in the description of this episode. If you do get in contact with him, please tell him I say hi and that you heard him speak on this podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with anyone that might also enjoy it and find value in it. And remember to follow Some Assembly Required on your favorite podcast listening app. As a one-man show, I would really appreciate it if you gave the podcast a five-star rating on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks very much. The Some Assembly Required theme music is by my friend and Cape Town musician, Josh Princeloo. Podcast production by me. Thank you for listening to Some Assembly Required. I look forward to speaking with you again next time.